I'll start. I was kind of waiting for a high some sign to start, but it's uh, after 10, after 3. So I have a full hour of talk, um, and I'll be happy to entertain questions and an answers afterwards. My name's Erica Aaron, and I am a um, nurse practitioner. I work at Drexel College of Medicine, and I also work at the AIDS Activity Coordinating Office in Philadelphia. And I've been taking care of women who are pregnant or HIV positive since 1992. Um, so I've lived through the 076 trial and knowing that we had AZT to treat. Um, I, I, when I first started doing this, we had nothing. Um, so we've seen remarkable changes in treating women who are interested in becoming pregnant. Um, and I am also on the um, DHHS guideline committee for the perinatal guidelines. Um, so I'll be talking to you about some very up-to-date um, changes that are about to be um, pu uh, published for, um, with the guidelines that I've been given permission to talk to you about today. Um, and I have no, um, nothing to disclose. Um, and um, I just wanted to also mention that I was asked to give the same talk to the larger group, um, I think it was about 15 years ago. Um, and it was the same lecture, the same title, but very, very different, completely different. And one of the things that I remember um, uh, Mike Sag asking me to do was to talk about preconception counseling. And I remember saying, oh my gosh, I, I really, you know, I talk about preconception counseling with my patients all the time, but I don't know it well enough to, to talk about in front of a group. He said, well, you have to do it. So he, re he really pushed me before, you know, we knew anything about pregnancy, really, um, to start to address this issue. And it really helped me then um, with my clinical practice. So I, I want to start with this slide, which is like one of the most remarkable advances in the field of HIV, where we discovered in 1994 during the 076 trial that um, if a woman was given AZT while she was pregnant, um, it was five times a day at the time. If she was giving AZT during labor and then to the infant um, four times a day at the time, that the, uh, there was a dramatic decrease in perinatal transmission from um, 30% um, without any antiretrovirals, and we didn't even know what viral loads were at the time. Um, so we didn't, realize, we didn't even realize at the time that it was the viral load that was what was important in transmission. Um, but we just knew that if the woman got AZT, the transmission rate went down to 8%. And that was just dramatic and remarkable. There was a huge public health um, effort at that time to get AZT into every single emergent, uh, delivery room. Um, so that it was available if a woman walked in. We were not doing HIV testing at the time of pregnant women, so there was a huge effort to start doing HIV testing. It was very exciting. Um, and I have to say that um, since that time, in terms of prevention of HIV, um, I think that, use the, that TASP using ART to prevent transmission to partners um, is just as remarkable. Um, knowing that if, a, you know, if, if someone's on antiretroviral and their viral load is undetectable, that the chances of transmission to their partner or now to their baby is, is, is almost zero, not quite, but almost. And also now PrEP can be given to, to protect people from getting HIV. And um, I think all of those are relevant to this talk. 
So um, the remarkable reductions in peri tra uh, perinatal transmission, as I just said, is a result of a vigorous public health effort. Um, first, we uh, pushed for HIV testing to identify all um, HIV-positive women of childbearing age so we could give preconception counseling um, and give birth control if, they, if the person didn't want to get pregnant or do very good uh, preconception counseling if they did want to get pregnant um, and do HIV testing of all pregnant women followed by a second test in the third trimester. Um, this was all recommended in 2006 and I think we can say pretty confidently now that all pregnant women are being tested for HIV in this country. Um, and that's remarkable as well. That was not the case uh, just five years ago. Um, we also make sure that we have very careful clinical management during pregnancy, and I'll be going over the DHHS guidelines um, with recommendations for how to give this kind of care. Um, that we do rapid testing during labor if the woman comes in if the woman comes in labor without a history of an HIV test, we screen all newborns for exposure to HIV if the woman um, is at risk and wasn't screened herself, and we treat infants during the intrapartum and the postpartum periods, which has dramatically decreased the the um, incidence of perinatal transmission. However, I do have to say that there's much less attention that's been focused on ensuring continuity of HIV medical care for the mother, particularly in the postpartum period, and I will be talking about this later in this talk. So there's some new data um, that just came out the end of July, um, which for the first time we have uh, transmission rate of perinatally acquired HIV infection in the United States of less than 100. It was 69 in 2013, and that's, uh, that's a remarkable achievement. Um, and it's been year, year in and year out, there's been slow decrease of perinatal transmission, and that's due to all of our efforts in this room and those and people who have been working on this um, for a lifetime, really, um, in, their, in their work in HIV. Um, I do want to point out, though, that uh, the, the decrease, um, there has, even though there's been a decrease in African-Americans' rate of uh, perinatally acquired HIV, it is still much higher than um, when white or Hispanic um, population, where in this last year the rate was 7.1 per 100,000, um, and in whites uh, it was 0.6. So there's still a lot of disparities, as we all know, um, with HIV, but it certainly shows up with perinatally acquired HIV. So looking at when women are diagnosed with HIV in terms of pregnancy is very important for um, looking at uh, when perinatal, how to, how to prevent perinatally um, acquired HIV infection. So this shows um, from uh, birth, in birth years 2008 to 2011, a cohort of 327 perinatally infected um, infants. And it, it, we see that uh, about half were, um, well, excuse me, 29% uh, were uh, diagnosed either at the time of birth or after birth. And so this is a, certainly a missed opportunity um, where uh, this diagnosis could have occurred much earlier than, than the birth, than at labor and after birth. And um, at, at, in order to have interventions like starting ART, um, getting a viral load to undetectable, um, excuse me, 
uh, and you know all the interventions that we now know were missed as a result. And so it's very important to understand where it is that we missed these opportunities to um, to diagnose women and and have women on me on medications prior to is the ideal um, becoming pregnant. So. Um, there, we, there is a cascade, a prevention cascade that was developed by the CDC, um, and, it, and it, this was done prior to um, the cascade that we know for HIV care, so it's quite different uh, than the cascade, but still it, it covers what needs to be done in order to prevent perinatal transmission. Um, the first is that we give primary HIV prevention care, which includes preconception care and family planning services to all women and girls who are HIV positive, that when uh, a woman is pregnant that we give her accessible, affordable, and adequate prenatal care, um, that we include universal prenatal testing as an opt-out, um, that we provide ART to all um, women as soon as they are diagnosed, especially during pregnancy, and with the goal of an undetectable viral load by the time of delivery with a vaginal delivery. Um, if the viral load is not undetectable that, and it's above 1,000, then we do recommend a C-section. I'll be going into the more details of this in a few minutes. Um, and that we, continue, that we really work hard to continue engagement in HIV care in the postpartum period with the goal of retention and viral suppression at year one and year two postpartum, and then, of course, out after that. But um, just related to the, the period of pregnancy, that is the, kind of the period that we're looking at one year and two year postpartum retention. So this is the HIV continuum. Um, and as we'll, uh, we'll talk about uh, later, um, the, this is for women in the United States, and this doesn't look that different than women who are in postpartum care, um, uh, but it, with, in terms of viral suppression and retention in care. Um, however, the, the prenatal period is a, quite an opportunity for us to engage women and talk to women about the importance of their own care, um, as well as, of course, the, the care of their infant. Um, but the, during the prenatal period, it's a great opportunity to really engage women in care. So um, this is the website that you can find to look at the uh, recommendations. Probably most of you have looked at these. Um, and I always recommend for the OBGYN providers that I work with that they have this on their computers in the delivery room um, and in the prenatal clinic so that they can constantly look at this. And the way that the um, guidelines are constructed is there are boxes with, that highlight what's in each section of the uh, guidelines. And the boxes, you know, really tell you kind of exactly what you need to know. Then if you want to know all the, the research that's gone into what the, high, what the uh, bullet points are, you can read on from there. So we've tried to make it so it's easy to read and easy to use. Um, the, the recommendations are based on the strength of the recommendations, which are strong, moderate, and optional, A, B, and C, um, similar to the adult guidelines. Um, and that the quality of evidence are one, two, and three. One, which is that there were one or more randomized trials. Two is that there's one or more well-designed non-randomized trials. And three is expert opinion. So um, there is, a, for in terms of preconception counseling, there is a whole section on preconception counseling. And I'll um, go over that. And I'll also discuss a couple studies that have backs up some of these recommendations. So um, for women, um, we should discuss childbearing intestines with all of the women who come to our clinic at all visits, if we can. 
um, you know, to, to know what they're interested in in terms of wanting pregnancy or not wanting pregnancy. If they don't want to get pregnant, then we need to offer birth control. If they want to get pregnant, then we need to talk about um, preconception counseling. And it's also important to discuss this with our male clients so that all of our male clients, we should know what kind of relationships they're in and if in those relationships they're interested in pregnancy. And if so, if they're in a, with a female, we can bring the female into the clinic and have an appointment with the two of them and discuss pregnancy intentions, prep, um, you know, uh, whatever it is that they need at the time. Uh, of course, we want to counsel. Um, if a woman is interested in becoming pregnant, we want to counsel on um, safe sexual practices, elimination of alcohol, tobacco, and other um, drugs of abuse. Uh, we'd like the um, antiretrovirals to be on board with an undetectable viral load prior to conception. That's ideal. Um, there, uh, the outcomes are much have, have shown to be much... Um, better if someone comes into pregnancy with an undetectable viral load in terms of premature um, prematurity. Um, there's less prematurity if the woman's on antiretrovirals prior to pregnancy. And when we select an antiretroviral, just basically we want to um, make sure it's an effective regimen. We want to know her hepatitis B status. We want to think about teratogenic potentials and any adverse outcomes to the mother or the fetus. So if it's a regimen that is causing the mother to be um, nauseous and vomiting, um, it would be best to change that prior to pregnancy since that is um, something that women experience during pregnancy and it's just exacerbated if the medication is causing the same symptoms. A daily multivitamin, so anyone who's not on birth control who can get pregnant, I try to encourage them to take uh, folic acid. Um, even if they tell me they don't want to get pregnant, I, you know, there's potential that they will become pregnant, and I do recommend folic acid to them to um, decrease the risk of, of neural tube defects. Um, and then, of course, we want to talk to them in the preconception period about any factors uh, that can lead to perinatal transmission of HIV, strategies to reduce these risks, potential effects of HIV and ART on pregnancy, and then the recommendation that of not breastfeeding due to risk of transmission. And I find that it's really important to talk to people about that in the preconception period so that they're not um, you know, disappointed um, towards the end of pregnancy when they realize that they can't breastfeed or that the recommendation is to not breastfeed. Um, and um, in terms of um, contraception, I'll talk a little bit more about contraception later, but there is a, a whole section in the uh, perinatal guidelines on the um, interactions of antiretrovirals with um, hormonal contraceptions. But basically, um, the studies that have been done on any of these interactions are, are pharmaceutical studies. They're not done in, we don't know the effects of actual, if, if, it, if there's an effect of pregnancy, unplanned pregnancy, um, due to these interactions. Um, so we do recommend um, any form of birth control at all is okay to be given to a woman with HIV on any medications. There's some medicines that maybe we would, we would, uh, steer away from, um, but if they're on that medication with an undetectable viral load and they want to be on a hormonal contraception, then we just talk about using con uh, con condoms as much as, as possible. Um, emergency contraception, um, there's no data on the potential interactions between ART and um, ECP, um, but at this point we are offering emergency contraception to our patients. It's better than not 
having a backup if there's a, uh, an, an occurrence where they were exposed to uh, becoming pregnant. And I'll talk about this a little more also. So for serodiscordant couples or serodifferent couples, um, their options, are ha it's really changed quite a bit since now we have PrEP and we have TASP. Um, up and before we knew about PrEP or TASP, uh, for a woman who is positive and a man who is negative, we could offer her um, self-insemination um, so that they can use con at condoms all throughout the pregnancy attempts um, and just, just do self-insemination with a turkey baster or with a, um, a, a, needle, a, a needleless syringe. Um, and that works fine. It, many, many people have gotten pregnant this way. I always tell my patients, don't use the turkey baster that you're using for, you know what I'm going to say. <laughs> um, and then they all laugh, so. Uh, so, I, you know, they can, get, they can get a turkey baster for this. Um, but it works, and it's, <laughs> and, it, and it's very easy to get pregnant that way. Um, and that way, um, the man's protected. But um, if the man is positive and the woman is negative, it's more complicated because, of course, you um, are not using condoms, um, and it's the semen that's, the, that's um, infectious, so you can't inseminate. Um, so uh, there have, at one point, we were offering um, reproductive technological um, assistance with sperm washing and ICSI and IUI, interuterine um, insemination, that would be done in a fertility clinic. However, there's not many fertility clinics in the United States that were offering this to HIV-positive persons. It was very expensive. It's not covered by insurance. So it was very difficult conversation to have. Um, and so now that we know that if the, um, if the man who's positive is on antiretrovirals, his viral load is undetectable, and if she's on PrEP, then they don't have to go to a fertility clinic. Um, and they can try to get pregnant, and they can do very. And I've had many people do very well that way. So that's a big relief and a big change um, than what we used to do just a couple years ago. Um, and so that's pretty exciting. Um, we we didn't do well in this country with um, reproductive technology for our patients, um, and I think that this is a great alternative. It's not expensive. It works, and. Um, PrEP is um, safe in pregnancy and it's safe in breastfeeding, and I'll talk about that in just a minute. So this is um, kind of a synopsis of an article that was written by Renee Heffron and colleagues um, that I recommend if you're interested in reading about periconception, HIV prevention for women and men. It's really well written, and it reviews the literature very well. Um, the, so the periconception period, of course, has an elevated HIV transmission and acquisition risk due to decreased condom use for pregnancy attempts. Um, periconception PrEP does not increase the risk of pregnancy loss, birth defects, congenital anomalies, preterm birth, or infant growth faltering. Pre and this is based on many studies. PrEP also offers autonomy and empowerment for HIV prevention. Um, it can be used alongside TASP, as I mentioned. It can also be a, a used alongside fertility screening, if that's what the couple um, opts to do, or if they need to do fertility screening for other reasons. Vaginal self-insemination, intercourse timed to peak fertility, which means that uh, the man can be on um, 
or either the, the person who's positive can be on um, antiretrovirals and they can have un, um, condomless um, intercourse at the time of, of uh, ovulation. So that's another option to teach them when ovulation occurs and um, that that could be a time to not use condoms if they are choosing to um, use PrEP or TASP. Um, I usually tell people that um, of the three condoms, um, PrEP or TASP, that usually I, I tell them that if they pick two of those, that it would be safe during the preconception period, that they don't need to use all three. Some couples, though, do opt to, you know, they're, they're very nervous and they opt to do everything, all three. So using condoms except at the time of ovulation, PrEP and TASP. Oh, TASP, I'm sorry. TASP is when the, uh, the person who's HIV infected is on antiretrovirals and with an undetectable viral load. And then the risk of transmission is, um, is the, the risk is, is very, very low of transmission. Treatment as prevention. Yeah, so that's what it stands for. I'm sorry. Thank you. Um, so one thing just to remember, if you do recommend PrEP for conception attempts, that um, women, as we just heard in the lecture um, earlier this afternoon, that um, PrEP is not, does not penetrate vaginal tissue for 21 days. So uh, the woman should be on Travada uh, for 21 days prior to pregnancy attempts. And the woman should be on, um, this is an HIV negative woman, of course, she should stay on Travada 30 days after attempting conception. Um, so to have like a tail afterwards um, of, of using, of having PrEP, and that's in the uh, CDC guidelines. Pregnancy and breastfeeding are not contraindications um, for PrEP use. So we do know um, through several studies, the Partners PrEP study, which um, had 431 pregnancies with an average of 35 days exposure to um, FTC and, um, and tenofovir, that there were no differences in birth outcomes in that group, the infant and that infant growth indicators measured at one year were the same. There was slight elevated frequency of miscarriages in the 431 pregnancy, but it was not significant. It was not statistically significant. In uh, 2016, there was a meta-analysis of three randomized studies of 240 pregnant women on um, tenofovir for hepatitis treatment. There was no association of prenatal tenofovir with congenital malformations, prematurity, or change in APGAR scores. The PROMISE study, um, what, which was just reported um, in CROI, and then there's a follow-up that was just reported at IAS in, um, South, in Africa, um, was based on uh, pregnant women whose gestational age was more than 14 weeks. They were randomized to three antiretroviral regimens during the prenatal period. And the infants, there was a subset of the infants from this study where DEXA scans were done to look at bone um, mineral density. Um, and that was done at age 0 to 21 year, days, and it's also going to be done at six months afterwards, and those results have not come out yet. But when they compared whole body and lumbar spine um, BMD, um, bone mineral density, between the infants born to mothers, in the three randomized um, arms, they did not show an impact on infant BMD. So this is in contrast to another study that the same man, George Syberry, had done, which showed a slight but non-statistical 
um, effect on bone mineral density in infants. And this is a larger study that he did follow-up that, that actually showed that there was no, and it was significant, that there was no impact on bone mineral density. So that's a big relief that um, we can tell our women that it's safe to use tenofovir during pregnancy for their infants. This was a study that was also reported at IAS this, um, in 2016 that was done again by Renee Heffron um, where she looked at um, uh, PrEP, PrEP and, um, and ART, so end treatment is prevention, that was provided to couples with safer conception during the periconception period, and she found that it was acceptable and feasible, and this was published, published data. Um, there was one um, seroconversion in her group, and that was a woman who um, did not use, um, did afterwards, she, she uh, talked to the investigators and she did not use tenofovir and she had an outside relationship. But other than that, there were no seroconversions. So I think, um, you know, from the, the, this is the most recent information we have, there will be more coming, but at this point I think we can feel very safe giving um, tenofovir um, during pregnancy. Um, we also know that the pregnancy registry collects um, information on pregnant women who are HIV positive, and again, we have not seen um, teratogenicity in that, um, in that cohort. Um, so um, that's, that's yet another way we can feel comfortable. Yes? What I have done is usually the women who are um, taking PrEP preconceptionally are still at risk during pregnancy, and so they have continued. But that's a, that's a, a very good question. I mean, if they're at risk for HIV um, conversion, I mean, but, you know, for 30 days of PrEP, hopefully that there's, there's still someone bored. And from what we just heard at the last lecture, that may actually be three days that, um, you know, it, it may be three days that we see good penetration that I think we're still finding out that information. So this still is, is new to us. Um, I do keep people on it during pregnancy and during breastfeeding attempts as well. So I'm going to turn to now management um, during pregnancy of um, ART and um, other interventions to prevent perinatal transmission and, to keep, and also to keep the woman's health um, intact. So the um, panel's recommendations are that we initiate um, antiretroviral as soon as the HIV is diagnosed. The earlier, the earlier the viral suppression is associated with lower risk of transmission and also there is a decreased risk of um, uh, prematurity as well. Um, and so women who enter pregnancy on a stable regimen which is tolerated and effective, their viral load is suppressed, we should keep them on that regimen no matter what the regimen is. So at this point, all regimens are not teratogenic. There are regimens we don't know enough about, but the panel feels that the, the risk of, a, of increasing viral load when you ch at, in, at, while changing a regimen is that there's a higher risk of transmission during that period than there is um, the um, the effects that we're not sure of with, with medications. So we're very comfortable with keeping women on the regimen. Um, and this is actually the way that we're finding out if these regimens are safe during pregnancy. It's that cohort of women who are coming in 
um, to pregnancy on the medications and be being reported to the pregnancy registry that we can keep track to see um, if there's any teratogenic effects of that medication. So in particular, integrase inhibitors, that's the way that we're at this point that we're keeping track to see if there's uh, any side effects or any teratogenic effects. Um, so we also, uh, we follow the viral load once we do start medication. If it is someone who's starting medicine two to four weeks after initiating treatment, just like you would in your clinic, and then monthly um, during pregnancy, we just want to keep a much better eye on the viral load since it is the viral load that determines transmission. So uh, we, we check the viral load monthly until it's undetectable and then every trimester after that. At 35 weeks, we check it again, which will inform us about a decision regarding mode of delivery and optimal management of the infant. So 35 weeks is another time that, you know, we just, you just know that's another time that we're going to get a viral load. So we do perform resistance testing prior to starting ART, just like we do in, in, our, in our regular clinic. Um, or changing regimens due to virologic failure, but the difference is we don't wait to find out the, the result of the resistance test. We want to change, if the, if, the, if the regimen is failing or if someone is not on, on antiretrovirals when they come in for treatment, for pregnancy, we want them to get on ART immediately. So uh, because integrase inhibitors at this point are not a preferred regimen, since we don't know as much about integrase inhibitors during pregnancy, what we recommend if we don't have a resistance assay to look at, that we start with a uh, PI-based regimen instead of an NNRTI-based regimen just because of um, drug resistance um, in, in the community um, is higher in NNRTI than it, it is with PIs. And if there is a lack of viral suppression, um, this is always very challenging in this population because we don't have time to wait to find out. Um, in our general population, there, we do have some, some time to you know, kind of figure out what, it, what the reason is for resistance, but in pregnancy, we want to have that viral load undetectable throughout the entire prenatal period. So um, the first discussion is, it, is it resistance or is it adherence? And we, and we really try hard um, you, during pregnancy, we're able to get a very unique relationship with our patients because they see us at least 13 times generally throughout the prenatal period. So it's a really good time to develop a strong relationship with them, to get to know them, to have them get to know us, to, know, to, ha to have them realize that we're not going to stigmatize them if they're not taking their medications. And hopefully there's a little more um, ability for people to, to really talk to us about the challenges that they're having with um, taking medication. Um, there is um, some uh, case studies of raltegravir using raltegravir at the very end of pregnancy. So if someone comes in with a high viral load at the end of pregnancy, raltegravir it can decrease the viral load very, very rapidly. Um, so if someone comes in at 35 weeks we don't, and, and their viral load is very high and they only have a few more weeks before we have to, to do a C-section or... Um, usually it would be a C-section if the viral load is so high, but we want to get the viral load down quickly, you can add raltegravir to the regimen. These are case studies. There have not been any randomized trials about this at this point. Um, but based on the case studies, there's about 10 of them that have been reported, and then there's our, and then, then there's, um, our own experience has shown that raltegravir really works very well. Um, we can, you can consider directly observed therapy. So those of us that have been doing this um, 
and have you know relationships with the hospitals that we work with, um, sometimes we can uh, get a patient admitted for directly observed therapy, especially during the last two weeks of pregnancy, because we want the viral load to be undetectable or close to undetectable at the time of delivery. Um, so. It's hard. Um, you, you really have to have a good relationship with your um, administrators in the hospital, but um, that ha we have done that in different um, cities in this country. Um, another way that we've actually um, sometimes gotten around this is if someone comes in with a very high viral load and has, a, you know, has obvious mental illness, um, many times we can get them, sometimes we can get them admitted into the psychiatric unit and then the um, OBGYN staff and the HIV team can visit the patient while they're in the uh, psychiatric unit, hopefully getting help for their psychiatric illness at the same time trying to get their viral load down. So we try, we try as, to be as creative as, as we can um, to, to make sure that the viral load's down before the end of pregnancy. I'm sure some of you in this room have had similar experiences. And then scheduling a C-section, if the viral load's over 1,000, we schedule it at 38 weeks. Um, of course, we talk to the woman beforehand, make sure she understands the pros and cons, um, but that there is a higher risk of transmission if the viral load is over 1,000. We do not wait till 39 weeks. 39 weeks is usually when C-sections are done for other reasons, but um, we j because we don't want to risk the woman to going into labor, um, we, we picked a 38 week is, is the time that's recommended. Um, there is no, um, we really don't think that any, uh, once a woman goes into labor, that there is a benefit of C-section. There's no documentation that there's a benefit of C-section. Some uh, obstetricians, obstetricians still choose to do a C-section, and that's their, you know, their decision, but there's no literature to support that. So if a person goes into labor, then the benefit of the C-section is probably not, it's not effective. So that's why 38 weeks is, is very important. So teratogenicity. Um, so there have been a bunch of studies, I've cited some, some of them here, and there's many more that have been cited in the, um, the guidelines. Um, that have shown that there are not, um, of all the um, medications, AR antiretroviral regimens, that there's no difference in rates of birth defects for first trimester compared with later exposures. And in the antiretroviral pregnancy registry, which is a prospective case, which, which collects prospective cases of antiretroviral exposure during pregnancy, it's provided by health, um, it's provided to the registry by health providers such as us. Um, and uh, it looks at the prevalence of birth defects. Um, the prevalence of, of birth defects of all the antiretrovirals um, that have been collected at this point in the registry has been 2.9 per 100 live births um, among women with a first trimester exposure to any antiretrovirals. And this um, is the same prevalence as we see in the general population of defects in the general population. And I think it's really important that we try to explain that to our patients, that they understand that in the general population there's a prevalence of about 2% of teratogenicity, and that if they're on these medications, the prevalence is the same. So that means that, we, that, means that there's still a chance that they, they may have defects. It may be or it may not be because of the antiretrovirals. And, and I don't think patients really understand that um, thoroughly. So I think it's really important for us to try to explain that in different ways to them. 
So I, I encourage you to um, call the registry or fax, or you can also do this online, um, any woman that you have that's on antiretrovirals. This includes any woman who's on PrEP who is pregnant. Um, so anyone who's HIV negative on Trivada should be reported to the registry as well. They're collecting that information. Um, and you can just look this up easily on antiretroviral registry and all of this will come up. It's the only way that we can really um, keep track of any effects of medications um, during pregnancy because we're not, at, you know, of course we're not going to be doing trials around pregnancy at this point. So um, some of this is new information that will be um, uh, released at the beginning of September, so just in a couple weeks. Um, so we do, there are some changes that have been made to the preferred regimens. Um, so with NRTIs, what we're recommending at this point, the preferred regimen, and these, the, when, we, when we look at preferred regimens, we look at regimens that have been in clinical trials that are demonstrating optimal efficacy and durability and with acceptable toxicity and ease of use. And I say that um, the acceptability of toxicity and ease of use because that is some, um, one of the reasons we've changed some of the preferred regimens and put them into the um, alternative regimens. So NRTIs, we recommend abacavirin 3TC and tenofovirin FTC. We have taken um, uh, AZT off of a preferred regimen. And this is a, a big deal. We talked about this for years before we were actually able to make that decision. But because of the side effect profile of AZT, because of the resistance barrier, and because of the low resistance barrier, and because of um, the twice-a-day regimen. So we're trying to pick regimens that are once a day um, as much as we can. So that is now going to be an alternative regimen. Um, it's, it was just odd. You're kind of saying goodbye to an old friend, you know. <laughs> it's really, really a strange feeling for all of us on the committee. Um, in terms of PIs, adazanavir is a preferred regimen and darunavir. Um, but darunavir must be given twice daily in pregnancy. It, it should not be given once daily. However, if someone comes in on a once-a-day regimen, has an undetectable viral load, and is very resistant to taking a twice-a-day regimen, I will keep them on the once-a-day regimen. Um, so in studies, um, we have not seen increased viral load, but PK data shows us that the um, levels are lower in the third trimester, which is why um, we want to make sure that it's twice a day, if possible. Um, and then we do include Valtegravir. Valtegravir, we do have enough information on Valtegravir to know that it's not teratogenic. We have, um, uh, but it is a twice-a-day regimen, of course. It's not, um, and it's not in a single pill formulation. So as soon as um, Dolvitegravir has enough information in the registry, we certainly will be switching to that. But at this point, we just can't use it because there's not enough cases yet that have been reported to the registry. Yeah. For, this is the only um, Valtegravir, because it was the first one that was on the market, it's the only one that has enough reported um, people who have been on it in the registry. Do you know how many people have to be on it before you guys feel comfortable? Um, approximately, does it have to be like 100? It has to show, um, I, I don't know the, the correct answer, because I know it's a statistical formulation that has to show that there's, a, uh, there's not more than a 2% in the population and more than 2% teratogenic effect. 
Um, so it's not an actual number. It's more, do you know the answer to this, Peter? No, but, but I think one of the issues with Doriotegovir is the same as the issue with boosted Doronavir, which is that the kinetics are not perfect uh, in pregnancy. And so uh, Doriotegovir concentrations go down. Uh, that was shown in a Croy abstract earlier this year. And, and so you have to be a little bit concerned about the kinetics, just like you would with once daily Doronavir. Right. The other thing about Doliotegavir is there's a case report of uh, increased, con it, it concentrates apparently in the infant. So, so that the, right. uh, um, there is one case report of a high bilirubin level in somebody exposed to Doliotegavir, there may be a long tail. So you might want to do uh, extra testing in the infant, for example, bilirubin. Uh, so, so I think there's some issues about bilirubin in the infant that you might you might think about with doliotegravir, and uh, but more and more people are using once daily doliotegravir and uh, and doliotegravir, and so then the question is, well, how are you going to handle that when uh, they come in? And one way might be to do extra virus load testing in the third trimester uh, to prove that you're not failing, uh, so that you can do something different if you were. And then, especially for the doliotegravir, think about different testing for infant safety. But I think it's really early. It's really early at this point. do not recommend doliotegravir. Yeah. Yeah, and I think the fact that at the 35 week, I mean, in, in the studies that have been done, the viral load has not increased in these, with these um, medications. It's more the PK data that we're seeing um, the change. I'm sorry, I should repeat what your questions are. She doesn't want to ask him questions. A lot. Well, these are not just naive. These are even for people that are being changed. If they're not on treatment or if they need to change their treatment, if they're failing a regimen, then this is, these are the preferred regimens. And so the alternative regimens now are AZT, Lopinavir, which was a preferred, is now going to be an um, alternative, and that is because of the, um, the pill burden and the side effects. Um, Afavirans we have now put into alternative regimens. Um, and, uh, and, and of course, it's not written yet. You, you'll see this in a couple weeks. Um, and the reason why is because of the side effects, um, not because that it's not, it's not, it's still, it's an effective regimen, and I'm going to talk about, um, some of the side effects in just one minute. Um, and valpivirine also is in an alternative regimen. Um, whoops, I'm going the wrong way. And there's insufficient data on um, the rest of, uh, the, the basically the rest of these medications. Um, and I wanted to point out more importantly, um, Cobicistat, um, there's not enough information at this point. There's only 32 live births, um, so we don't know enough about um, that, m this, this in um, pregnancy. And TAF, we still don't know enough about. We, we really have no information on TAF. Um, but I want to talk about efavirenz just um, for a minute, and then I'll answer your question. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, I think, I think the slides are all online. You don't have to keep writing. <laughs> okay. I'm glad they're helpful. <laughs> so, um, efavirenz, um, 
I just want to talk about efavirenz because some of us um, have lived through the life, you know, cycle of efavirenz when we said don't ever use efavirenz in pregnancy, and I was just like telling every single person I knew, don't ever put a, a woman of childbearing potential on favarians, don't ever put a pregnant woman on favarians, because at the time there were neurotube defects that were reported. But now um, there is enough information and enough people who have been on a favarians that it is less than 2%. Um, the, the neurotube defects were very, very uh, minor. Um, and... Uh, <coughs> And so we feel that a favorance after five to six weeks is safe in pregnancy. So the concerns was using a favorance in the first trimester. Um, and we know now that the potential risk is restricted to the first five to six weeks of pregnancy. There was a meta-analysis of 2,000 women in the, with the first trimester of a favorance exposure. This was from 21 prospective studies, and they did not find an increased relative risk of overall defects in infants. And these were women who were on a favorance also in, in the first five to six weeks of pregnancy. Um, so data suggests that first trimester exposure is not associated with a large increase, and that would be tenfold or more risk of neurotube defect, and that the risk is not greater than that seen in the general population. However, because we know that that can happen, can occur during the five, first five to six weeks, we do not recommend um, favorance for people of child, childbearing potential, that we can consider other alternative regimens. And at this point, we're not putting many people on a favorance now that we have uh, you know, better um, alternatives with less side effects. If a person comes in on a favorance, you can continue that during the pregnancy as long as they're not having side effects and their viral load is suppressed. So uh, if a couple comes in who are um, discordant, the female is negative in this situation, um, we've co I, I come up with a uh, kind of a flow chart of how to deal with that in your, in your clinic. Um, so she's pregnant. Um, and she's low risk. Um, she doesn't have risk factors for HIV um, transmission. Her partner's been tested. He's, he's negative. They're in a um, monogamous relationship. They don't have outside partners, and they don't have any STDs. At this point, you can do a fourth generation test. You can do this every trimester. Um, you can put her on PrEP, or he can be on antiretrovirals to have an undetectable viral load. Um, and if there are no symptoms of seroconversion, you would do, repeat the fourth generation test at 35 to 36 weeks. This would be a very low risk person who's in a serodiscordant relationship. So again, PrEP would be something I would offer her, um, even if his viral load was undetectable, just because pregnancy is such a vulnerable period. But if someone is high risk, um, and that would be that their partner's viral load is detectable at any point during pregnancy. They're not using condoms or PrEP consistently, um, or she's been diagnosed with a STD um, or her partner during pregnancy, then we, we really worry. Um, I definitely offer her PrEP. I do a lot of um, counseling of the partner if the partner can, does come in. Many times the partner doesn't come <coughs> into the clinic um, with her in this situation. Um, and we do a fourth generation test um, throughout the pregnancy, you have an option of doing viral load testing. So you can do viral load testing throughout pregnancy if you're worried about seroconversion. You talk to her a lot about the symptoms of seroconversion and to come in if there's any symptoms at all. 
Um, and we do viral load testing. You can do that every four weeks if you feel comfortable doing that. And then at 35 to 36 weeks. Um, at 35 to 36 weeks, you can do an antibody or a viral load. Um, recommend, and um, if, the, if the test is negative, you would recommend strict condom use. You would hope to ensure that the partner at that point is undetectable and that she's on PrEP. If they're not able to adhere to that above, you can do um, HIV or viral load testing present in labor, and you can also have the option of starting AZT during labor. You can also give the infant AZT until you have a confirmed test after, la after labor in the postpartum period. For breastfeeding in this situation, again, you would continue her in PrEP. You'd recommend strict condom use. You'd recommend partner with the PrEP viral load and PrEP. You could also recommend um, no intercourse if um, any of these are not followed. And, you know, if they're able, you know, these are the options that you would give her. Um, if the, she's not able to adhere to the above, you would recommend strongly against breastfeeding um, and do a lot of counseling. Um, hopefully during the prenatal period that you would start doing this counseling. If, that's, if she still decides to breastfeed, you would do HIV testing, viral load testing um, monthly. Um, I have never had a situation where <clears throat> this actually has happened because you know, the relationship has usually been developed and at least the person's on, you know, is pretty adherent to most of these. Um, so that uh, what I've seen is low risk people, I think that um, the people who I don't see are the ones that are higher risk, the ones that aren't in care that I worry about most. Yes? Is this information going into the guidelines? This is in the guidelines. Oh, it is. Okay. <coughs> Perinatally infected pregnant women, I just want to mention we're seeing more and more of them because the, these women are now grown up um, and having children of their own. Um, there is a significant number of unintended pregnancies in this population, um, but the components of healthcare and prenatal care do not differ. However, there are some unique issues to be aware of, and we have a whole section um, that's been actually rewritten in the, in the uh, perinatal guidelines that pay attention to this population. Adherence is often, often a problem, as has been a problem throughout, you know, of taking medication throughout a lifetime. Overall, this is a younger population, and there's a much higher chance of drug resistance um, due to prolonged exposures. So it's much more complicated, um, and certainly an HIV provider should be involved in these um, in management of these um, of these uh, women, young women. So intrapartum um, viral loads above a thousand—that's what you need to remember. Um, if the woman has a viral load over a thousand, she should get intravenous AZT. Um, if it's below a thousand, she does not need intravenous AZT during labor anymore. So that's another amazing something amazing. Um, we, a scheduled C-section, as I've said before, if the viral load is over 1,000. Um, and again, the, oh, and there is a national perinatal hotline which um, operates from San Francisco. This is 24 hours a day. So if someone comes into the delivery room and there's any kind of questions or if you have any questions about management of um, antiretrovirals during pregnancy, they're a wonderful <coughs> resource. I've used them a lot. 
So in the postpartum period, this is the um, information of uh, what we give the infant. I'm not going to go into too much detail about, um, about this, but basically we're giving AZTPO if tolerated twice a day for six weeks. Um, and we start, we start the AZT as soon as possible. Um, it's, it, we say in the guidelines beginning within six to 12 hours, but really we try to do it as soon as possible. If it is an infant who's been exposed to viremia, so a woman who um, has a high viral load or didn't get, um, it didn't get prenatal care and she's very high risk for HIV and we don't know what her viral load is, we can add niverapine um, to the AZT regimen and that would be the first dose within 48 hours of single dose niverapine, the second dose 48 hours after that, the first dose and the third dose 96 hours after that second dose. So infants born to mothers with unknown HIV status, um, we recommend rapid HIV testing of the mother and or the infant as soon as possible after birth. Immediate initiation of infant um, prophylaxis if the test is positive. If the fourth generation test is positive, a second rapid test should be done immediately and results should be available within one hour. And all delivery rooms should have this capacity to do this at this point. The option if the second test is negative is to obtain a maternal viral load and um, continue the uh, infant on AZT until you get the viral load results. If the secondary test is positive, obtain a newborn um, HIV DNA PCR. And if that is positive, of course, then um, we're gonna, you're going to stop the prophylaxis and immediately start um, antiretroviral treatment. So um, in terms of infant feeding, breastfeeding is not recommended in the United States where we do have replacement feeding that's affordable and feasible and acceptable um, and is safe. Um, when we discuss avoiding breastfeeding, um, it's, this is strong standard recommendation. But the panel notes, and um, many of us know, that women face a, a social, family, and some personal, cultural pressures to breastfeed. Um, despite this recommendation, it is very important to address these barriers early in the prenatal period, not to wait till the uh, postpartum period. Um, and there's, uh, you know, it's a very, it's very challenging. Um, we, uh, you know, you, you would like, we want to support um, the women. We want to respect her cultural background and this and the um, stigma that she may be facing. Um, it's very important to have these discussions and, and be, have, you know, long discussions about this, try to figure out creative ways to strategize um, around social and cultural <coughs> pressures to breastfeed. You know, the um, message that women hear that breast is best, um, we have to, you know, counter that with our discussions, and this takes quite a bit of time and can't be done in the postpartum period. It really needs to start in the prenatal period. But I want to point out um, it's very different in um, third world countries, um, underdeveloped countries, um, and the WHO just came out re with revised um, recommendations for infant feedings that I think is very interesting. Um, they say that in settings where health services provide and support lifelong ART, so that's important, the woman is going to be on ART, including adherence counseling, um, and promoting and supporting breastfeeding among women living with HIV, um, the duration of breastfeeding should not be restricted. 
So the change is that um, the recommendation is for at least 12 months and can continue up to 24 months or longer. And this is, of course, in settings where there is not a safe um, water supply so that the deaths, uh, that mortality from diarrhea is much higher than the mortality of um, the HIV, of HIV, and women who are on antiretrovirals with an undetectable viral load have a much lower chance of transmitting HIV to their infants. Um, so uh, this is this is something that's that's um, uh, that it's new for the WHO to be recommending this long uh, a period of time to breastfeed. So, yes. called developing world. Um, I would think that that's the same because our babies still suffer from low birth weight. Black babies are still dying from three to one. And the social determinants of health are real and have not been seriously addressed with the rapidity and the strength that now they're addressing Zika. And so I think that it, this becomes problematic when um, we are not looking at this and, and looking at this within the context of what's happening to black and other women of color, even women on the um, so-called reservations here. I think that that is something that should be looked at and taken instead of just making uh, this blanket statement. Well, I certainly agree that social determinants of health um, and racial disparities exist, um, and especially with premature delivery we know that that just being African American can is is a reason for have for prematurity, um, and and that um, but the risk of HIV is and an, an HIV positive child which can be avoided. I think there's a difference in um, discussing that, and I think we should have maybe have this discussion after um, I finish my talk, if that's okay. Um, but I think what you're raising is a very good point about the disparities that we see and that we need to be very sensitive to people's social and, um, and cultural beliefs. And HIV disclosure as well. Um, I think uh, supporting women to develop creative ways and strategies to disclose. And if not, if they if they do not disclose to their family members or their partners, then our institutions must, must be very careful excuse me, careful to make sure that we don't disclose that we have very good policies around confidentiality. Um, and so postpartum um, birth control um, needs to be discussed. Um, as I had said, um, there is data on drug interactions. I'm not going to go into that now just because of time, but there is lots of information on this in the uh, perinatal transmission, in the perinatal guidelines. Um, but basically, all contraceptive contraceptions can be offered to women. Of course, long-acting contraceptions are best. Um, so if we can offer IUDs or implants, that would certainly be the best form of birth control we could offer. And those are safe in, um, with HIV. So I just want to end with talking about retention in care um, because we know that there's poor retention in care in the postpartum period, that there's been studies that indicate um, that only between 36 and 39 percent of women who are HIV positive are engaged in appropriate HIV-related care during the postpartum year. 
um, and factors such as mental health disorders, caregiver responsibilities, lack of economic and social support, lack of insurance, because um, in some states insurance changes um, and is taken away as soon as the woman delivers. Um, and these all impede adherence to care. And there's many ways we can intervene um, to prevent this in the prenatal period and then um, continue to provide um, coordinated care in the postpartum period. Just to mention a couple studies that have been done recently. This was just released a week ago. Um, it was a cohort in New York. It was a retrospective study of 980 women who were diagnosed with HIV at least one year before pregnancy and who had a live birth between 2008 and 2010. 24% of women were lost to HIV care during the postpartum year. Um, 75% of the women were suppressed during, uh, at the time of delivery, but only 44% continued the suppression a year later. So this is similar to the um, uh, HIV continuum that we're, that we're familiar with, um, but it's very important to point out that uh, in the postpartum period, we have had a relationship with these women during the prenatal period. We have an opportunity to engage them into care. And this is um, very distressing to see such low um, viral load um, suppression um, a year later. Another study that was um, uh, published in Clinical Infectious Disease in 2015 by a group from Philadelphia and um, Florence Montplacier is in the office. It's in the office. It's in the audience. <laughs> Um, this was a population-based study of women that found that only 39% were retained in care one year um, postpartum, and she developed an HIV care continuum postpartum that I won't go into right now, but retention at one year was 39%. Suppression was 31%. So it's very low, and it's very dis disturbing. Um, we do a great job during the prenatal period. Now we have to do a better job during the postpartum period. Um, I'm going to just finish with a couple slides and then I'll entertain questions since I think I've gone over at this point. Um, but I'd just like to point out that, um, as I said, uh, communicating with women during the prenatal period, maybe making appointments for her HIV um, appointment at, during the third trimester. Don't wait till afterwards. Don't wait till the postpartum appointment. Do it before she delivers so she has an appointment before she, leave, before she goes into delivery. Having good communications with HIV, OB, and PEDS. I can't um, emphasize enough how important the pediatricians are. Pediatricians are going to be seeing these women probably, as we see through these studies, more than we will. Um, and so the pediatricians have a, a, a doorway into uh, to seeing these women, talking to them about it. Are they on birth control? Are they keeping their HIV appointments? And helping to um, communicate with us, with, with the team of how the woman's doing um, to try to keep her in care. Um, and there are uh, models that we've used, like perinatal case managers, which has been shown. There is a poster here um, that looks at perinatal case management and how much better women do and retained in care um, who are perinatal case managed. There are people who are doing centering um, during pregnancy and center, parent centering, um, which is a very um, unique and um, 
has a lot of potential to um, maintain women in care and look and um, look at the women's total health. Um, and then peer mother support groups um, like uh, in Africa, the Mothers to Mothers program that we could replicate maybe here in the United States. But the use of peers is something that Ryan White providers have been using for years and seems to be effective. So I want to thank you um, and um, I'll entertain a few questions. Oh, the other microphone. Okay. So I'm um, Lizzie Schmidt, and thank you very much, Erica. That was a wonderful summary. Um, I want to echo what this lady in the front has talked about to start a discussion about what is the actual risk of transmission in a woman who is undetectable, so her viral load's uh, less than 20. We've always been taught that blood has the most um, HIV, then semen, then vaginal fluids, then breast milk, so the least. Now, yes, there are concerns about um, right after birth, there being, that's a higher risk time, but I don't think we're ever going to do the studies. We talk, people say, well, there's no data. I mean, who's going to do this study? There is data. Okay. But that's mixed. What about so ongoing so feeding? Right. So, you know, the, the, these decisions, I think, were made by the WHO based on... Will you pass uh, the microphone? ...sources to feed people with. Like, like she said, like having water that would cause more harm to the babies than us. So we're still... We're not ever going to tell a woman, no, you can't breastfeed. But right now, I think the recommendations are based on what we know and what the science has told us, that it's safest to avoid breastfeeding if you have other very good options. But there are cultural differences. And we have a lot of African patients, so we may have to start changing our thinking. So you get this. So there were different arms on the PROMISE study, but on the arm where the mother was undetectable, the, the risk of the baby was 0.5%. It was not 2%. And the risk remained at 0.5% at one year postpartum. So I think it's actually very convincing. You know, it's almost like the, the um, we talk about, uh, you know, treatment as prevention. It, it, it you know, it applies. Like when, when you have a sexual partner, in a serodiscordant couple relationship, you can tell the person, well, if you take your med, the risk of transmission to your partner is super low, it, and it, it applies for the mother. 
So can I just say that I think this discussion applies to a population of women that we may see who have decided that they're going to breastfeed. And who's um, undetectable. Uh, well, let me just say that there are women, you know, and, it's, and I have to say that many of them are West African um, because there's so much stigma in their community that they live in that they, I know that they're going to go home and breastfeed. If they tell me they're not, but they do go home and breastfeed. And I know that's occurred, and I know women who that's happened to. Um, and so what I feel like what I need to do is talk to her about being on antiretrovirals and having an undetectable viral load. It's risk reduction. I discussed the fact that we recommend not breastfeeding. Um, but if I think that it is someone that is going to breastfeed despite what I say, which we see, I um, make sure that they are on antiretrovirals, that they have perinatal case management, that they have lots of in-home supports, that they have lots of follow-up appointments, that the pediatricians know the risk. Um, so... Well, that's the recommendation. I don't recommend it, but yes, the if recommendation you're do it. is that you continuously breastfeed. But um, it's very uncomfortable um, because we don't recommend breastfeeding in this country because there is options to not. You know that the, the option of not breastfeeding and having safe water supply is much safer. But, but we also is, don't it, recommend injecting drugs, but we know people do it. And so, if you're going to do it, do it safely. You know, my one concern about that, though, is I have heard there are pediatricians who will report a woman to, to the DHS to Department of Human Department Services, of Human Services yeah. as an instance of child abuse. So that's concerning. I have a question. Um, it's not about breastfeeding back here. Okay. Um, <laughs> I only <laughs> I see that. HIV positive patients, and uh, and. Today, everybody's saying one pill once a day, and all the guidelines are start everybody on one pill once a day. And they pretty much all can't contain either dolutegravir or um, cobicistat. Right. So I try to keep up with the guidelines. Have they addressed women of childbearing age that we should be recommending something completely different if they're considering even having children five years or ten years down the road? Well, at this point, um, we're not recommending that. At this point, and, and at this point, if someone comes in um, pregnant, we keep them on on the medication? It's a very good question. We have not been recommending that. Favarins is the only drug at this point that we recommend not giving to people of childbearing age. Just but um, the risks, yeah. at, you know, I, we're, we're collecting data as we speak. Data's coming in. I think that in six months, in a year, this is going to be a very different conversation because hopefully we'll have enough information. But, um, at this point, we're not recommending that. It's a very good question. And if you feel uncomfortable when you prescribe medications, atazanavir is once-a-day regimen. It's not one pill a day, but it's a once-a-day regimen. And you can certainly, um, you know, prescribe that. Or, um, you know, uh, Prezista twice a day. Or you can give it once a day and then change it to twice a day during pregnancy, which is what I usually do when someone comes in pregnant. I'm sorry, I can't hear you. Can you give her that? No, the regatez you can keep. The regatez stays the same. Uh, it goes to 400 milligrams at 20 weeks. I think that there was a study that was done by Mark Marajnak that looked at that, but it's not in the recommendations. Oh, interesting. Not a regatez. You're talking um, about Prezist Durinavir? 
Adizanavir. Right? Adizanavir? Yeah, they didn't change Not Adizanavir. Adizanavir, you keep the, it's the same. Yeah. yeah. Um, I wanted to actually change the topic again, if that's possible. <laughs> yes. Um, my, my comment was more about transition. Um, I always think about women when they have given birth the same way as I think of our teens who are transitioning to the adult clinic. And that we're really not doing enough, like we're focusing on transition of youth and we're looking at them transitioning into the adult world and being retained in care. But with, uh, with women, after they give birth, we just basically follow them so many times, only for six months no more than six months. And that six months is actually the period of time that they tend to be coming with their, with their newborn infant. So at least for four months and sometimes for six months, especially if they have any kind of resistant virus. But I really would like to see and challenge people to think about doing a quality improvement program really based on this whole thing of transition, that post-pregnancy, you're transitioning this person into a different kind of um, of care um, because they it's it's again at what you had mentioned um, taking care of a newborn where I live I'm from Duke and so I'm in Durham and so many of our women come from from very impoverished um, settings don't have transportation may have uh, may have additional children and it becomes more and more difficult for women to be able to take care of themselves and we see so many of our women actually fall out of care yeah. and this is something we're really trying to focus on is is approaching it from the approaching it from that viewpoint of transition mm -hmm. and saying okay let's look at it in that way and let's do it the same way that we would do with the Ryan White project mm -hmm. yeah and, and I think uh, also at many of our clinics you know those of us here are in Ryan White program so many of us have um, clinics that uh, coordinate care where the OB where we, we work with OBGYN and pediatricians very closely so we're developing those relationships so that afterwards we also have perinatal case managers or case managers that do follow further than the six months and and hopefully we're transitioning them back into an HIV clinic so it's not a six month you know it's it's much longer it's lifetime and I, many times I say that the relationship I develop with these women in the prenatal period, it's a lifetime relationship, the beginning of a lifetime relationship. Yeah, I think one of the problems is a lot of times that they're not retained. They do go back into that clinic. They are, we do have that issue where they are interdisciplinary approach as well, but they're finding that, you know, after six months, so many of them They lost a care. Mm-hmm. All right, so I... I Let's I, I want to brag a little bit about our program. I work with Jean Anderson, who you probably know, at Hopkins. Mm -hmm. um, we have what's called the HALO program. And for 20 years, we've put together a multidisciplinary team. We have a whole reproductive health care for HIV. It's kind of unique in the country, and we're, we're sort of proud of it. So when we have women come to us to care during pregnancy, they are seen by maternal fetal physicians who are experts in HIV, so they don't even see their ID doctor. But we work very closely with both medicine and adolescent medicine and pediatric as a multidisciplinary team to, to keep people in care, make sure that they're virally suppressed. Um, I want one more comment I want to make about the importance of third trimester testing. In Maryland, I think last year we had four HIV-positive um, babies born, and we're really proud of the work we've done. However, when we looked back at those children, those were women who got infected during pregnancy. So I can't 
underestimate the important or overestimate the importance of testing during the third trimester. So it's 4.30 now, and I think out of respect for people's time that we should end and we could, you know, if you have other questions, I'd be happy to entertain them here at the microphone. And I thank you very much for all the great work that you guys do. Thank you.